Well, you can open up your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. We're actually going to start reading, though, in verse 16. So go a couple of verses back. Romans 8, verse 16. And read along with me. And if you're new here, thank you for coming, and uh, you want to make sure you open up a copy of God's Word uh, on your phone or in the Pew Bible in front of you and study along with us. Romans 8, verse 16, God's Word says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And thus ends this reading, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, ever since Bambi burst into the lore of mid-century America childhood, our country seems to relish in anthropomorphism. Huh? Anthropo-what? All right. My uh, child and my son and I were talking about anthropomorphism this last week, so this was fresh in my mind. And so anthropomorphism simply means treating something like a human. We love to think of animals like people, Bandy and Thumper. They all what? They all talk. Do animals talk? No, of course they don't. They all feel. They all kind of have this interaction, these social interactions. Do animals do that? No, they don't. And so we all anthropomorphize animals, and that's been kind of par for the course. We assume that animals think, feel, love, make decisions like we do. And so over the last 20 years or so, as Birth rates in America tend to decline. So too have we seen a boom in what you might call fur babies. You ever heard of that? And 60-year-olds posting on Facebook with their grand doggies. You ever seen that? It's even spilled over into environmentalism. The ocean, rocks, plants, and especially polar bears each have taken on significance, sometimes on par with humans. And there's something problematic here. We admit that. Because humans alone are made in the image of God. But I want you to notice something. Even the Bible speaks of creation anthropomorphically. It speaks of creation as talking, teaching, helping us know and understand things, showing us that God's creation has always been there to teach us something about God. God's creation, like a wise old grandmother, helps us learn more about God what's gone wrong with the world, and even the purpose of life. And as we'll see in Romans 8, God's creation speaks. It groans. It's said to have deep longings, and it teaches us. Psalm 19 
famously speaks of creation in these words. Just listen, Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation speaking as if it was a human. And the topic of creation speech in Romans 8 is suffering. How to suffer well. Suffering isn't hard to see. Life isn't all beauty, perfection, and good. Just prayed about it, but just last week we were made aware of multiple seemingly random shootings of people making simple mistakes. Perhaps you've suffered this week. Perhaps you've endured difficulties because someone close to you has disappointed you or discouraged you. I know of people suffering this week of the horrible effects of disease, maybe cancer, simply aging. Others are suffering from the effects of tornadoes. Their houses have become piles of splinters and a mess. Perhaps some of you are suffering this week the consequences of your own sin. You're racked with guilt and shame, and you leave in the wake of your uh, relationships a, bu a bunch of broken difficulties. And you don't know how to pick up the pieces. And as we read our text, it speaks of suffering a couple of different times. Some of you might ask a good question. What type of suffering is Paul speaking of here? Is it physical and emotional pain? A byproduct of living in a sin-cursed world and storms and things like that. Maybe he's talking about the effects of Satan influencing the world and persecution that comes. Maybe even the suffering that comes when we sin. What type of suffering does Paul address in our verses? This is important to know because it actually says that eternal glory is conditional on our suffering. I mean, look at verse 17, right? If we are children then of God, then we are heirs, and we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided. You see that 17? Provided that word is very important. How do we know we're heirs with Christ? Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So it is suffering as Christ suffered in this verse that is kind of definitional of what makes a Christian. So does that mean that we, the suffering addressed here is only unjust persecution? You might think of Christ having suffered much unjust persecution. But didn't Christ also experience more suffering than just persecution in his life? I mean, he certainly saw the effects of natural disasters. He knew very intimately the issues that come with you know, living under a corrupt governmental system. He understands the effects of sin of others on his own life. He knew that intimately well. Really, the one exception of Christ's suffering that he never experienced that we experience is a result of his own sin because he was perfect. Nevertheless, we, we know Paul speaks of all kinds of suffering in our text because of verse 18. Read the beginning of verse 18. It says, For I consider... consider that the sufferings of this 
present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed. See, that's the sufferings of this present time. From the time of Christ up until now, all sufferings are being addressed. And it can't get more inclusive than that. And the culmination of this suffering leads to the groaning, literally, of all creation. Verse 22. Even to our groaning, verse 23, as we wait eagerly for resurrected bodies. This speaks of universal suffering that leads to groaning, even suffering because of our own sin. For isn't one of the sweetest anticipations of heaven going to be no more struggles with your own sin? And so, suffering of all types is going to be real in this world. That's what this text is dealing with. It's talking about. And the great hope of this text, the great verse that is looming over it all is Romans 8.28, isn't it? For we know that for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good, right? This is our great hope. It's a great encouragement in the midst of our suffering that suffering isn't meaningless, that God is still God, that he is still sovereign, that he is still king overall, intimately involved in every single minutia of every single event that has ever happened. All creation knows this. The wind and the rain don't try to be God. They just obey their creator. And so Paul, picking up on this reality, points us to God's creation, gives it a voice, and says to you, learn your lessons on suffering from creation. You will endure all types of suffering. It will be frequent. It will be difficult. It will be varied as your days are varied. But there is hope. Because God is always God. And for those who belong to him, all things work together for good. So as we listen to creation speak this morning, we're going to see five ways that creation teaches us to suffer well. Five ways that creation teaches us to suffer well. These are different ways to look at your trial to look at your pain, to look at persecution and famine and tragedies, and to still learn to have hope. Five ways to never give up when things seem to spiral out of control. I mean, if you have suffered recently, you know that in the middle of suffering, in the middle of difficulties, you will be bombarded to think, don't trust God anymore. How can God the Father love you if you're going through this? You don't deserve this. Make this right on your own terms, in your own way. You don't have time for God. Life is hard. And it's during the emotional drain of suffering that we must learn to suffer with an eye towards the, the one who has the ability to help us in every storm, an eye towards Christ and our sure and certain inheritance. So the first way to suffer well, number one, compare suffering to future glory. Compare suffering to future glory. This is a verse that speaks in big terms of ages, of epochs, of whole time periods that creation enjoys, of glory. And it connects our salvation and the redemption, really, of every part of fallen creation. These things are intertwined, not only in this verse, but all throughout this text. 
And as soon as Paul reminds us that suffering well is part of what it means to be a Christian, he immediately compares suffering to glory. He compares this age of suffering to the next age of future glory. And so let's see what he does in verse 18. Read along with me. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, the concept of this present time, again, this is the age of falling creation, inundated with all varieties of suffering. Perhaps we could be a little bit more detailed here. This is specifically referring to the church age when Christ has come to save his own. And yet, while we still live with the effects of sin, because you might be a Christian, and yet you still suffer. Is that not true? So it refers to this present age where there will be sufferings. This present time is full of sufferings of every kind. Now, I think sometimes it's helpful to realize that there are, are categories for sufferings, and you might have a longer list than I do. But I think I have five broad categories of suffering, just to kind of get your uh, mind thinking about this. First category of suffering, we suffer from our own sin and its consequences, right? That happens all the time. You sin, and it makes life harder. Number two, the sins of others and their effects on us. I mean, that's common too. If you're married, if you live with your family, if you, you understand the effects of other people's sins on you, right? And it makes life very difficult at times. Three, third type of suffering, the corruption of this world system and persecution that comes from it. We see governments not function the way they desire, the way it would be best. We see poor administration of resources, and we see persecution. Number four, sickness, disease, and death. Every one of us has experienced sickness and disease. And I'm sure you know a loved one who has died. Number five, think of natural disasters of every kind. Natural disasters of every kind. So you see, this present time is marked by a variety of sufferings. Sometimes we will endure one kind over another. Sometimes it seems like all five are sitting there pounding us day in and day out. This present time is marked by sufferings of all kinds. And doesn't it seem like the constant pull in suffering is to give up, to assume that life is hopeless? To at least act like you don't think that God can help? Doesn't suffering tempt you to despair, towards anger, towards selfishness? Of course it does. And so, so how then can we ever expect to suffer well? We look to creation. We stop and we consider and we compare. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that's all types of suffering, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
You see, in order to consider, to think about the future glory in comparison to our current suffering, we have to stop the line of thinking that we so naturally go down when we're suffering. We have to slow down from our natural responses to, to suffering and thinking, oh, this is hopeless, this is pointless, this is stupid, I can't believe this is happening to me. God, you don't even love me anymore. Whatever you're thinking, you have to slow down, you have to stop, and you have to think on God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, I get extremely myopic, extremely nearsighted, totally focused on me. I mean, classic example that I think everyone here has dealt with stomach flu you got the stomach flu you're sitting there over the toilet you're dying practically you feel and you think to yourself i wonder what my wife is doing right now i wonder what my children are doing i wonder if they're doing okay no you don't you think i'm gonna die <laughs> right this is what suffering does to us it focuses on what we're doing in the moment and we are just totally all embraced on our suffering. And sometimes you're starting to get over your stomach flu and the pain begins to dull a little bit. And that is more typical of most of our experiences. Pain ebbs and flows. Your anger flares up. It dies down with suffering and people being mean to you or sinning against you. But it's always true that when we're suffering, it's hard to think about anything but ourselves. And so we're reminded what verse 18 says, look at the big picture. Stop for a minute in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your difficulty. Take a step back and place our hope in God's plans. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, that is coming to us. Focus on the big picture of future glory. It's the wonders of eternal life, of a, of a new epic, of a new time that God says is coming to us. When the glory of God will come to dwell with the redeemed. When the glory of God will be shared with us. When we and every part of fallen creation will be renewed. That's what helps us to suffer well. To realize that this suffering, this trial, as real and intense as it is, is momentary. So stop. Take a step back. Compare and get some perspective. To help us understand how to do this, I, I think I'll share a little story from when my kids were younger. They're like one or two. They all had similar experiences. They cried over the craziest things. They were really quite hilarious. And you try not to laugh as a parent, but you inevitably crack a smile. And one of them that happened, I think a couple of times, was my children cried when their banana broke. We first would give them chunks of banana, you know, and then we give them little bit bigger pieces and they can kind of gnaw and gum it on them. And then finally we would give in and give them the whole unwrapped giant banana in their hands. And here this little two-year-old, this little one-year-old, whatever old they were, they were amazed. They was like, awesome. This is the greatest lightsaber I've ever seen, if they even knew what a lightsaber was, right? This is just incredible. I got a banana. Anyways, inevitably, you move the banana around as a two-year-old, and what happens? It falls off. Take a bite, and what happens? It falls apart. No more big banana. Only small banana. And when what happens? Those tears start coming, and they just, oh, man, life is 
pointless. We find that funny. Why? Because we have perspective. We see their little world as crushed because their big banana broke. But if the big banana breaking is their biggest problem, we're doing something right as parents, aren't we? See, our sufferings, as real and significant as they are now, are like broken bananas compared to the weight of glory that is coming to us. This is momentary. That's for eternal. Remember the verse I suggested you meditate on last week as one of the best ways to fight suffering? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. You can turn there if you want. I wanted to read to you kind of the verses surrounding that. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Paul says here in regards to suffering, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, it's this transitory nature of now and the eternality of glory that is supposed to sink in when we stop and we consider and we compare our current suffering to the weight of future glory. So as you suffer clouds over your life, as you think that you might not be able to persevere, to respond rightly in your suffering, stop, consider, and compare suffering to future glory. The epic to come, the age of glory, is a far greater good than this suffering is a bad. And so we compare, along with creation, our current suffering to future glory. But isn't just at the level of thinking, of, of considering and comparing that help us to suffer well. It's also at the level of longing, of desiring that helps us to suffer well. And so we see a second lesson from creation. Go back to Romans 8. Long for your future glory. Lesson number two, long for your future glory. Now, it's one thing to know that heaven is amazing, glorious, certain, and true. It's completely different for that knowledge to affect your desires, to affect the longings of your heart. Listen to the deepest longing of creation in verse 19. Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. See, it's, a, it's an eager longing. This is the, like you can't sleep the night before Christmas type of eager longing. 
The whole of creation will be radically transformed for the better. And so creation eagerly longs for that day, as if on pins and needles, as if willing it to come could make it come sooner. That's the type of eager longing that creation has towards the glorified future. Now, what specifically, though, is creation looking forward to in verse 19? Is it specifically looking forward to its renewed state? No, it doesn't say that. So creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. That is the revealing of all the redeemed in all of our glory. And you might say, but hasn't that already happened? Haven't we become Christians? Aren't we adopted into God's family? And if you're here, I'm assuming that many of you are Christians here. And so you say, well, I'm already a son and a, or a daughter of God. And so in a sense, yes, verse 16 says very clearly, look back with me, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are current, present tense, children of God. At the moment of conversion, we have a settled standing before God, forever adopted into his family. But God also talks of our salvation as progressive, as something that is continually being worked out in our life and as something that is a, a final work yet to come. And in verse 19, our adoption is in that third category, that final work of future glory. Creation eagerly longs for that day that we will have glorified bodies when we will be fully recognized and seen as the sons of daughters of God that we are. It's fascinating that creation is said to long not just for its own renewal, but for our future glory. For us, coming in blood-washed linen, finally pure and blameless, forever free from sin, our glorified bodies, our eternal life, signals in the coming of a new age, a new epoch, when all creation will rejoice and be freed from the effects of sin. Oh, beloved, we sing songs of heaven, of the glories of salvation, because we not only want to know about future glory, because we should long for future glory. And one of the quickest ways to get the desires of our heart and to get to the desires of our heart is through music. God designed us that way. I mean, have you ever tried watching an intense moment in a movie with the sound off or the music not playing? It kind of lacks a punch, right? The crescendo of the orchestra, that's what makes you weep in the middle of the movie, right? I mean, that is what is giving us that emotional, desirous impact. And so God instructs us, literally, in the New Testament and the Old, to sing, to sing about our salvation, about the glories that are still to come. And so maybe we can do this real quick. Can you go back to the third verse of How Great Thou Art? I know I'm throwing this on you real quick. How great thou art. And we're going to sing that third verse together and just think about the lyrics. Think about what this is doing. How great thou art, the third verse. It's when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Let's sing that. 
When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God how great thou art and then we get to desirous don't we we get to desires of our soul then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art you see the level of impact singing has on these truths that is by God's design it is God's design to allow us to have good music to sing together so that we can learn to long for God's promised future and to remember those truths that are set to music and then to memory you know, some of the sweetest times I've spent with beloved saints who are fading from this life have included singing. Sometimes with them if they are still there enough and sometimes simply singing to them. And as I sing, we are jointly reminded not just to compare suffering to future glory, but to long for our future glory. So examine the longings of your heart. Focus on what is true about your future. Sing a song or two and ask God to help transform the longings of your soul. Be like creation does in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, our third way creation teaches us to suffer well, number three, Trust God's sovereignty over suffering. Trust God's sovereignty over suffering. Here's your pop quiz. Why is there suffering, death, and destruction in this life? Answered in your head. Why is there suffering, death, and destruction in this life? Answered in your head. You might say, because of the effects of sin. And you'd be right. Partly. You see, there's suffering, death, and destruction because of God's curse for sin. There's a subtle but very important nuance. You see, we are not living in a world that is hopelessly spinning out of control, getting worse because of the uncontrollable effects of sin in this world. 
No, we live in a cursed world with the God who cursed the world as our heavenly father who promises that even our suffering and this cursed world will actually be used for our good. Without God being in control of suffering or the curse or the effects of sin that we see in this world, we end up lacking a good measure of hope. And we see a settled trust in God's kingship literally from creation's mouth in verse 20. Look at the beginning of verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. So it says it's subjected to futility. And what is futility? It just simply means ongoing suffering in the context of what we've been talking about. Paul has in mind things like droughts, floods, earthquakes. And we can throw in tornadoes, hurricanes, volcanoes. But futility is not just the massive displays of a sin-cursed world, but even the quieter displays of a sin-cursed world. Weeds in your lawn. How many of you have way too many dandelions growing right now? Animal diseases that jump from animal to animal or to humans. Snakes that swallow robin's eggs. You see, there'd be a sense of hopelessness, futility, if you were to see every effect of God's curse every day. Day. And when Paul says in verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, he means it wasn't as if creation chose to take part in some twisted experiment of sin. It's not as if random chance caused all these things to happen. It's not as if the effects of the fall were because of anything lacking or evil in God's good creation. No, it's all based on the fall of men and God's subsequent curse. Look at verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected to futility, and not willingly, but because of him who subjected to it. Who's the him who subjected creation to futility? It's God. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, was it sin that cursed the ground? Was it man that cursed the ground? No, God cursed man, woman, the snake, the ground, the creatures who run in fear of men and one another. Why? Because God alone is king. God is sovereign over everything. And as a holy and perfect good God, there must be consequences for sin. See, this really is the starting point for understanding the gospel, isn't it? We need to know who God is, sovereign king of the universe, holy, good, perfect God, and we need to realize that we are not. We aren't pretty good people trying to make it in this difficult, suffering-filled world. We've actually inherited Adam's sin nature, so even our desires are corrupt in themselves. We love to live for self-glory. To think almost incessantly about ourselves, how we're always right, what we're going to do to get something that we want. We love to justify little lies, stretching the truth a little bit to get what we want. We love to justify lustful glances. We love to justify anxiety over a situation, even a little bit of anger here and there. And all of those issues of the heart may happen without any outward manifestation. And yet those things are sin before God. 
Now, do you remember Adam and Eve's first sin? Was it taking of the fruit? No, something happened before then, didn't it? Was it their sinful desires to be like God, to get something better to eat? It was desirable for food, it says, of the fruit. Those are clearly sins, and those happened before they took the fruit. So that happened first, too. But the first sin was actually to distrust the goodness, holiness, and sovereignty of God. That's the original sin, which trickled down to all the others. You see, those doubts that lead to distrusting God are especially strong when you're in the middle of suffering. And so it is in the middle of suffering that you need to remember your suffering isn't random. It isn't the result of the world spinning ever more out of control because sin has somehow impersonally done something. It's not because God has just let you go on your own. No, it's when you're suffering that you most need to remember God is sovereign over your suffering. He won't let you go beyond what you can handle, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us. He doesn't let sufferings pile up without any hope of escape. No, God's sovereignty in suffering is a great encouragement to those who belong to him. And so we're reminded, trust God's sovereignty over suffering. Well, there's a fourth way that creation teaches us to suffer well. Number four, anticipate a new creation for your new life. Anticipate a new creation for your new life. You know, once we settle into the sometimes uncomfortable reality that God is sovereign, in control, even kind of directs us into and out of suffering, we can finally realize that God's sovereignty extends not only to bless, but to curse as well, which means he's that much more powerful to take us out of the curses. So in order for God to be truly in control of all the good that he has promised, then he also must be sovereign over the evil as much as the good. And so we learn that God is sovereign, not just over the uncomfortable parts of life, but the glory still to come. This all-encompassing sovereignty gives the Christian hope. Verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, that is God, who subjected it. Why is God's sovereignty um, subjecting the earth to futility, to suffering? Why is that somehow good and helpful for us? The end of verse 20 says, So that in hope... The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, the only one ultimately responsible for bringing the curse on the world is also the only one responsible for bringing us through the mire into majesty. Creation itself here is said to look forward to the day when it will be renewed. See, I want you to understand something. Heaven is not some eternal church service in the clouds. I do wish I would have realized this when I was like 10. I kind of thought heaven might have been a little bit boring when I was 10. You know, praise, 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 praise for eternity, right? I mean, that sounds boring to every 10-year-old. 
But that's not what heaven is like. We see a continuity between this earth, this creation, which was held in bondage, cursed by God, and the new earth that will be, receive the same type of freedom and glory that, that we are promised to have. That's what makes this physical bodily resurrection of Christ so vital to everything we believe in. The actual historical resurrection of Jesus' physical body is central to the good news of the gospel because it ties into the culmination of our hope, which is a new creation for your new life, not just an eternal church service. See, Jesus came to deal with not just a spiritual problem of sin before God, but a physical problem too. See, the wages of sin is, first of all, physical death. And also, it means spiritual and ongoing punishment. And part of God's curse, common to the whole world and every man, is that we will all suffer and we will all physically die. But you see, God sent Jesus physically to this earth to live a substitute life. A perfect life that, that none of us could ever live. And then Jesus died unjustly in our place. And God poured out the wrath that was deserved for your sin, for, for, for my sin, on Jesus as he hung on the cross. And you see, that is what is essential to understanding that Jesus had to come physically to live the life we couldn't live physically, to die in our place physically, and then on the third day to what? Raised from the dead. After three days in the grave, Jesus was raised from the dead and given a new body never to die again. And his resurrection proves that his sacrifice was effectual. And don't miss this. It also shows us what the future holds. His resurrection points us to a glorified physical state for everyone who belongs to him and verse 21 shows us it isn't just a glorified body that's coming. It's a glorified everything, right? Verse 21, read with me. God has subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so we have as our ultimate hope a renewed and restored creation, a new eternal physical life. But for whom is this hope a reality? Is it for the whole world? Is it for everyone who tries to be a good person? Turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and to answer some of these questions. Who has this as a hope to look forward to? Who is it that looks forward to a new creation and eternal life in these terms? Romans 3.20 is very clear. It certainly is not the one who just tries to be a good person. For by the works of the law, no human will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Earlier in that same chapter, Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 10, verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks after God. So based on what we do, there's nothing we do to merit or to earn this eternal life. This is not some glorious promise to every single human who has ever, ever lived. So then who is it that can look forward to such a glorious eternal future? 
It's very simply the one who sees sin as sin, sees God as God, and turns to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Go to chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And those who are justified, those who are justified, they're justified. They're made right before God by God's grace as a gift. He wants to reiterate, it is not the, nothing that you've done. It is a gift from God through the redemption, that is the purchasing of our freedom, the purchasing of our punishment that comes through Jesus Christ alone, whom God, verse 25 says, put forward as a propitiation, as a payment by his blood that he shed on the cross to be received by what? Faith. Only those who trust in Christ alone are saved. And how do we know we have this faith? What does faith look like? Read Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In other words, we died with Christ. We died to self. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It is the one who is no longer desires to live for himself, but desires to live for the glory of God. You've turned and you've trusted. That's the one who has the eternal hope of eternal life. He continues, verse 5, for if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, that means if we have died to self like Christ has died, if our sins have been put on Christ and we've trusted in him, what happens? We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know, verse 6 says, that our old self was crucified with him. We've died to self in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We are going to desire to walk with Christ, desire to follow Christ, desire to worship him. And so we are those, if you believe in Christ, who have turned and who have trusted in him alone for salvation. That is the one who has eternal life. And without this radical life change, this turning to Christ, there is no hope of a new creation or this new physical glorious life. Suffering then just becomes a precursor for eternal condemnation. Listen, if you don't know if you are right with Christ, do it now. There is no reason to delay. There is no reason for you to not pray right now in your heart to the Lord and ask him to forgive you from your sins. Ask him to help you turn and follow and trust him. Do that now. Come and talk to us afterwards. I'd love to help you walk through this new life. And if you belong to God, Suffering, suffering then is given its proper perspective when you clearly anticipate that God has a new creation in store for your new life. That's the culmination of Christ's work for us. He came to give us new, perfect, even better creation. New creation to explore, enjoy, and to be fuel for perfect praise as we dwell with God forever. As we close, we learn a final lesson from creation. 
Number five, groan, but expect the glories of adoption. Groan, but expect the glories of adoption. So even though Paul tells us that creation longs for future glory, trust God's sovereignty over suffering, anticipates a glorious renewal, suffering is still the ever-present experience of life here and now. And so there is always going to be an appropriate groaning as we suffer. Here, Paul puts the groaning on the metaphorical lips of a suffering creation, verse 22. Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, the Bible gives language to our groans. This language is called a lament, a mourning. Think of lament as a, as a hopeful complaint, a righteous complaint that cries out with a questioning trust. You might think that sounds a bit oxymoronic, but it really is not, okay? There's a questioning trust that we are to do when we come to God. We are to cry out asking, why does it have to be like this? Why do people always seem to continually sin against me and punch me here and there? And why is evil always so close at hand? As we bring our questions to God, as we ask the questions why, we are actively then trusting God to what? Hear us. We are actively trusting God to strengthen us. That's why we come to him. We are actively trusting God to help us. That is why you are crying out to him in lament. These are the Christian's groans. The never downplay suffering while never giving in to the draw of despair. But did you notice that these groanings have a hope-filled lining These are the groanings. What does verse 22 say? In the pains of childbirth. In the pains of childbirth. Let me put it this way. If you were in the hospital and you heard a lady across the hall screaming in agony and pain, it makes all the difference in how you feel of the situation if you know you are in the maternity ward and not the oncology ward. Oncology means cancer, right? You see, not all pain is the same. Certainly, childbirth is incredibly painful and incredibly difficult, but there is immense joy afterwards as you hold that precious gift of life. And so it is with a Christian. We rightly groan in the midst of our pain and our suffering, but we groan in light of a glorious and joyous future that is ours in Christ. Creation understands that God promises a glorious future. Why don't we? Paul, too, compares creation's groanings to ours in verse 23. Look down at that verse. Not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters the redemption of our bodies. We'll look more at this verse next week. But for now, notice how Paul went back to our blessed hope. 
that helps give perspective to our groanings. Verse 23, right? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters. We are adopted for life to thrive as God's children certainly and always is. To know that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts and God adopted us into his eternal family is a very present hope. It is wonderfully comforting to know we can come to God in the middle of the night with our night terrors or any intense suffering that may come and that the king of the universe welcomes us into his room like we do our three-year-old. It is immensely comforting now to be children of God, but it is also a great source of future hope. For as heirs with Christ, we will be given glorified bodies like Christ's glorified body, one that is free from sin. And we'll be able to enjoy a glorious and new creation. So yes, groan over suffering and trials, but always keep an eye on your certain future. Expect the glories of adoption. To close, I want us to be exhorted by Paul again from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53. As you're turning there, listen. Do you know the time to learn to suffer well? It isn't when you're in the hospital, though you might be more interested in listening at that point. The time to learn to suffer well is when you are relatively well. So that as we come and visit you while you're in the pain that you're in in the hospital, as you have intense moments of suffering, these vital truths are already coursing through your veins. And then we can cry together. We can sing songs of glory together. And we can groan as we both eagerly wait for the final step of our adoption as God's children. So let's listen to Paul's encouragement one final time on how to suffer well in light of eternity so that we can prepare when our suffering gets more intense. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, how do we live today? My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for that great promise that our labors are never in vain, that even as we think that in the midst of our suffering, the whole world seems dark and clouded over and quite terrifying, we pray that you would help us to labor 
regularly, day in, day out, repeatedly stopping, considering, and comparing the weight of this suffering, this weight of this momentary trial compared to the glories of our future. Help us, Lord, to anticipate the glorious new creation that is ours in Christ. Help us, Lord, to faithfully long for that day when our faith becomes sight. Help us, Lord, to recognize that the sting of death is gone because Christ has gone before us and promised to give us eternal, new, blessed, glorious life. May that end, our end, be a motivation for us today to live for you and for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.